Welcome to the Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing podcast, where we explore the hottest topics in cyber marketing, interview experts, and help you become a better cybersecurity marketer. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Through in Cybersecurity Marketing. I'm one of your hosts, Jana Whitmer, with my co-host here, Maria Velasquez. And we are so excited to have Ashish Malpani. He is the head of global product marketing for DX, and he's our amazing guest today. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm super excited to talk to you guys. And yeah, I mean, really happy to share my experience, my background with all of you. I can't wait. And I think the first thing that we have to talk about is the fact that you've left cybersecurity. You've (laughs) gone. Yours, you said, goodbye, cyber. <laughs> come back, come back. <laughs> no, I mean, it's for me, it has been an interesting journey. I mean, I've spent such a long time in security from networking to information security and to even physical security. So it was kind of a hard transition in a way, but I'm super happy that you know, I've joined Progress. Many of you probably don't know who Progress is, but it's a 40-year-old software company. And if you've used you know, assets like Flowmon, NDR, WhatsApp Gold, you know, Chef. I mean, all of those are assets in the progress portfolio. But yeah, I mean, it has been an in- interesting transition, but I've also carried over a lot of my learnings from the cybersecurity industry, product marketing over to here. And it has, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, two months into the role, it's been quite exciting. That's amazing. What are some of the things that you're doing there? So I lead the global product marketing team for the digital experience business unit. And my team is spread all the way from Melbourne to Portland. So there is not a single time zone that works for everybody on the team, So which is a challenge in itself. But when you look at digital experience, I think more and more buyers, and it's kind of common across the industry, are spending time doing research on their own before they even fill out a form, before they even fill out and say, yes, I'm ready to talk to a rep. So the the idea is how do you give them the right ammunition, right tools, right education in that research phase and become one of their choices when they're going from awareness to like a consideration phase. And then this is where really having that digital experience that is targeted to your prospects comes in. And we talk a lot about I mean, getting that personalized content. I mean, you know, understanding who you are, what industry you're from, what country you're from, and really delivering. I mean, healthcare in U.S. is different than healthcare in Canada is different than healthcare in U.K. versus Asia Pac. So when you're looking at CIO in healthcare or CISO in healthcare is looking for information, different things need to be kind of presented to them and catered to what their needs are. And this is where kind of your digital experience comes in. But beyond that, it's not just about customer acquisition, but also customer retention. This is where Progress has a really strong portfolio where we we look at once somebody signs up as a customer, how do you then go from there to making them and onboarding them? How do you kind of keep them happy on an ongoing basis? So when it's a renewal time, it's not a difficult conversation, right? So... Digital experience is becoming harder for us marketers to track and actually document because sometimes some of those touch points we don't really have access to or visibility to. What are some things you've done to help with that particular challenge? So, yeah, I mean, you know, think about, and especially now the whole buzz is about generational AI, right? I mean, how do you, you know, with the advent of, you know, tools like ChatGPT, Jasper, a lot more content creation is getting outsourced, but then... The real challenge is, you know, as you look at the tools 
that are generating these content, you're going to kind of get the similar stuff and with different flavors from one version of the tool versus another because there's only so much information that they're going to go off of. Right? So as you look at kind of digital experience, it is not about understanding who you are and really delivering that personalized content, personalized experience, but also helping you automate simple things. If I am, let's say, a patient wanting to go to a hospital, do I want to call them, right? Or do I want, I mean, if you look at the newer generation, they prefer texting and, you know, chatting with somebody rather than, you know, picking up a phone. My 15-year-old son is no different, right? So, you know, for, I, mean, you know, as we look, I prefer texts. I don't even, <laughs> I don't even check voicemail anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think that is, again, we are moving a little bit further away from that human connection that is getting delivered by, you know, face-to-face interaction. But even with that, how do you still optimize and really deliver that catered human experience? And this is where you know, having tools like a native chat or the chat bot can not only schedule appointments for you, but also do something, some things like maybe look up an FAQ that's answered your question based on certain things that I've done previously. So there are things like this where you can deliver that experience. And then I think it's true in the cybersecurity world as well, right? I mean, being there in the industry, I mean, yes, we chase vulnerabilities. We chase, you know, things, bad things happening. You know, somebody having a bad day, how do we fix that? And how do we provide the right set of tools to not only maintain their good cyber hygiene, but really looking proactively, how do we improve the cybersecurity program year over year, quarter over quarter? Even when we are doing that, what is their end experience, customer experience looks like, right? I mean, yes, if you ask why there is such a big challenge when in it comes to having really the right set of people you know there is what we call cybersecurity skills gap because it is overwhelming you know it is really looking at the alerts and chasing down you know this that rabbit hole versus this rabbit hole it is a different kind of skill set and you know even mentally you have to be ready to do that on day in day out and that of course causes burnout but then some of these, you know, we are moving towards automation in the cybersecurity industry. And the same thing is applicable in the application experience or even digital experience perspective. So you mentioned a couple of job titles or personas, and then you also mentioned a couple of different industries. Talk to us about your team and how it's spread out across your TAM, if you will. And then how do you prioritize? Because there could be a million different personas and job titles that you target, right, for the your product offering, and then each industry is also different job titles, right? How do you manage that? How do you organize it? So let me kind of give you the lay of the land, right? So we have what we call is a developer tools, where we deliver tools, widgets, things that would make it easy for somebody to develop an internal application, you know, especially when you look at like customer onboarding applications or something that would help you know, make the customer journey easier, even what we call is a B2E application, right? You know, something that you're developing for your own employees. So though we do do that, I mean, and the target persona for that is developers, right? So it's really, really reaching out to those developers saying that, hey, not trivializing their job, but at the same time, we are going to help reduce the time you spend because we are giving you ready to use components that you can drag, drop, and renew. The code will be populated for you. Then we have security portfolio within the digital experience that helps you securely manage or transfer files and automate them and make sure that human errors are mitigated or minimized when you're doing this. For them, for that product line, the, the target persona is the CISO and the security leaders and security architects. 
when and for digital experience itself the core of dx is content management systems right you know you know as marketers you know we we look at not just creating content but i mean how do you take that same piece of content that now publish it to you know all the way to a cell phone to website to different ways where the experience can be consumed and make sure that you know you remember when gianna let's say she visited the website on her phone first then she transitioned into her macbook then she said okay now i'm going to go to my work computer but we have to understand that there's the same person who is doing all these activities so then they're increasingly progressing in your buyer's journey right so how do you track that so content management system is kind of the central piece of it for that the target persona is the marketing ops cmos and then if you look at all of this combined who is the person who is responsible for all everything that happens in your stack it's the cio right so it's like yet another persona so this is then becomes a really challenging value prop right how do you not i mean not only reach out to developers and sell them on the value but go all the way to the cio and say here is how we are going to make it easy for you to integrate all these different things and make sure that your cmo is happy because they are delivering that experience you know make sure that your ciso is happy because the security layer is taken care of and then your developers are happy because they are cutting down on their application development time so yeah we definitely a lot of different personas to deal with but then you know, that also presents a unique challenge in itself talk about multi channel multi pronged everything <laughs> I think progress has more than just security tools, right? So you have these developer tools and all these awesome different tools. Some are security, some are not. But you have a really strong background in security, having worked at DeepWatch and also at Forcepoint. And I know your background is security product marketing. I think a lot of us in security also target the developers with easy-to-use developer tools or DevSecOps. And a lot of us also sell different other types of products, which maybe developers aren't involved at all. But the similar line is still that we're also targeting a lot of different types of people. We're targeting the CISO because the CISO has theoretically the the authority and potentially the budget. And we're targeting the user because the user will say to the team, hey, we could really use this because we have a problem. And we're targeting their manager maybe because they're part of the committee. And we're also maybe targeting now the CFO, especially now, now that markets and budgets are tighter. If you have one security product that you're selling, how do you go about creating a message for each of these? Do you have some sort of tips you can give us for the listeners? When you're starting with a high level, like here's our company, our brand, here's what our product does, and then distilling it down into each individual person that you're going to have to target in your messaging. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where my background in security has really kind of helped me transition what we are doing at Progress, right? I think the biggest differentiator for security is the pace at which things change right i mean every day there is something new that's happening somebody's having a bad day there is a new cv that comes out and everybody's jumping on it and you know, trying to provide a response that is the clock is ticking you know so and that has not been true for traditional industries for example right i mean where you know yes where the pace is and the buying cycles are long so i mean i've been kind of instrumental in driving that change within progress where we are saying okay how do we go from spending 30 days in planning for the rest of the year to cutting down that planning cycle and moving faster and say that okay you know because we need to kind of deliver the right things but at the same time you know as you said different personas their pain points are different their needs are different if you talk to a ciso yes security and having the best security is paramount 
But when you talk to the CIO, I mean, their concern is, you know, you check mark from the CISO, but ultimately it needs to fit into whatever I have invested in already, right? It cannot be something that you are asking me to rip and replace because you don't work with this particular tool that I have in, in my stack. When you talk to the CMO, CMO is like, my role is to drive new pipeline and make sure that I am reaching out to the right audience and I'm telling them the right things that they want to hear, right? So depending on the persona, then you can actually, if you can have the ability to cater and deliver that experience differently, right? Where really somebody logging on to the website, if they identify themselves as a CMO or even before they identify themselves, I mean, there are a lot of things that are, again, you can do to pull that data, right? I mean, if you, if you let's say you're logging off, again, not reading third-party cookies and you know, not doing any security violations and GDPR violations, but understanding what country you're from or your geolocation, you know, your industry, that gives us really, really good starting points. And if I know in the digital experience world that you are a CMO versus a CIO versus a CISO and my messaging is different, then I can actually cater that. So I think when you talk about cybersecurity, and catering to different personas, this is where really kind of leveraging the digital experience platforms to suit that, I think that is going to be critical. And even for us, when, when we reach out to developers, I mean, developer outreach is not done on, let's say, progress.com. We have a different brand called Telerik where everything developer goes on, on there, right? We, we have detailed kind of documentation, videos, integration, this, that. All of that happens on Telerik.com versus the higher level, C-level messaging happens on progress.com. So there are certain nuances. There are certain things you can play with and you know, understanding what's the best way to reach to your developers, DevSecOps people versus you know the CIOs and CISOs from your target customer base. What have been some types of content or pieces of collateral from a product marketing perspective that you've seen resonate really well with maybe like the developers or some of the technical audience? Like, do they do they like to see the product? Do they like webinars? What have you seen? I think more and more people are getting <laughs> kind of moving away from attending a webinar again, especially when now that physical events are back in form, right? People want to have that face-to-face interaction, need to see who I am, you know, who I'm going to do business with, right? So I think webinars are still important tools to amplify your message, but it it is not a substitute for face-to-face. So that's number one, right? I mean, really showing up at developer events, you know, talking about kind of your technology. And the key thing is not to trivialize what the developers are doing, right? I mean, yes, today a lot of code can be found, copy-pasted, generated somewhere else. But even then, really telling them that, hey, we are here to make your job easier, right? You know, we know that, yes, you are doing and creating all this. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to think, start things from scratch. So in the developer world, yes. But then when you look at kind of somebody like us, IT leader or security practitioners, right? If they are your target persona, then you have to kind of treat them as your champions. And then what I've coined, I mean, I've used in past in saying, how do you make your champion successful within their organization? Right? I mean, really focusing on giving them the right ammunition, the right tool set. Maybe it's an ROI calculator when they have to go talk to their CIO. Maybe it's a broader use case view that you know, saying, you know, not just focus on this product, but have a bigger portfolio view. So arming them with the right things that will help them sell your value prop within their organization, right? So really treating them as your champions and doing things for them. And it's kind of bottoms up sell in a way. So yeah, there are things that you can do to really reach out to that practitioner developer audience 
but still have a reach to their higher level management when it comes to IT or even security space. It's refreshing to hear you say that, right, Gianna? I think also it's even more refreshing coming from a product marketer because a lot of times we're so enveloped in how amazing our product is and it can do this and it can do that and here's the latest release and this feature can do this versus here's how this product will change your life. Here's how this product will help you in your job. It's amazing to hear you say that. And I think especially in cybersecurity space, you know, we are all either victims of this or, you know, kind of it's a self-serving narrative, right? In a way, if you were to deploy this additional product, your life is going to be super easy. And that's never true, right? I mean, and I think more and more CISOs are coming to a realization that if somebody is hell-bent on getting into your network, they will find a way, right? So then how do you change that narrative to say that, yes, it's not about stopping people from coming in. And you know, if you look at messaging five years ago, it was like, let good people in, stop bad people out. Yes, that's no longer true because yes, I mean, somebody will find a way to get in. It's important in terms of if they find a way to get in, you identify that, quickly contain it and mitigate that impact. I think this is where CISOs are also kind of evolving their thinking. And your messaging as a cybersecurity vendor, I was a cybersecurity product marketer, also needs to kind of change to that narrative. So I think, yes, I mean, there are definitely things as we see, things are going to evolve. Whatever was true five years ago is no longer true now, right? And now a word from our sponsor, Hushly. Hushly is the first all-in-one buyer experience and conversion cloud. Hushly takes critical marketing products that need to work together as a single solution and brings them into one unified platform. With Hushly, cybersecurity marketers gain efficiencies, productivity, and scale while offering rich, personalized, and connected digital experiences to their prospects and customers. If you're looking to be more efficient and make account and contact level personalization a core part of your demand generation, ABM, and content marketing efforts, then take a look at Hushly. That's Hushly with no E. H-U-S-H-L-Y dot com. So one thing we love to do whenever we have a product marketer who has handled the analyst relations side of the house is ask about analyst relations because there's a lot of jobs you can have in marketing. Most of them don't touch analyst relations. And then maybe one day you have to touch analyst relations and help with analyst relations. And you're like, what? How does this work? So you previously have been in charge of the analyst relations program, I believe, correct? Can you tell us a little bit about how you've built an AR program in the past? I think, you know, for me, you have to have, and the end goal for the AR program is to really become that strategic input to the business. It cannot be like, we have something, let's go talk to the analyst, or if I get an MQ request or a wave request, I'm going to fill that out and call it a day, right? It, AR program needs to evolve from really, so the way we approached at DeepWatch was, you know, starting with just spray painting everybody who could we could find is like, okay, I'm going to talk to you about DeepWatch and then just giving them who we are, what we do, kind of starting there. Once we talked to about 40 or so analysts in that, you know, so I would call it like a phase one of your AR program where you're trying to do as much outreach as you can and really reach out to everyone in the world. From there, then focus on, okay, who are the key analysts who are going to have influence 
on your target audience, whether talking about somebody like who's covering your specific area or if you have multiple products like it progress, you know, we have different analysts covering different parts of the portfolio, right? There is a like, digital experience, let's say MQ and Wave, and then there is also a CMS MQ and Wave, then there is also file transfer MQ and Wave. It's kind of, so there are all these overarching things, sub things, you know, all of that. So really fi- figuring out who are the analysts who are going to be really influential in this. And it doesn't have to be like just the Gartner Foresters of the world, right? Where it's like in all the way, I mean, I'm IDC, ESG, Omnia, right? Figuring out who is going to be influential for your target customer base. If you are catering to enterprise, yes, you're going to have to look at Gartner and Forrester. But you know, if you're mid-market, then you know maybe there are other analyst firms who can really help you build that function for yourself. Could you give us like a market map then? So like, what are the different analyst firms that, and how do you categorize them? So for me, yes, uh, no, Gartner is definitely the 800-pound gorilla in a way, right? Yeah. Right, it's so, like uh, up here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to work with Gartner because, I mean, if you have an ambition to take your product to the enterprise space, or if, you, if you're playing in that space, you have to work with Gartner. And when I say work with, it's really making sure that and that they know who you are, you are kind of fitting into either their category or if you're trying to create a new category, which is also a really interesting experience, but then can you rope in some of the analysts who see your point of view and see that, okay, you know, there is enough to really kind of coin, separate this alpha, uh, kind of Uber category into two and then create a category itself. So from there, I mean, Forrester is definitely very, I mean, but Forrester is also expanding into analyst experience and you know things that are ancillary to what you do, and especially when it comes to cybersecurity. It's not just about covering product lines or services, but Forrester has spent a lot of time and research doing, calling it like analyst experience, which is really how, as an analyst, cybersecurity analyst maybe looks at everything that is happening. It's not just dashboard and UX, but also how and where their lives are getting better working with your product line. So analyst experience is like, because I hadn't heard that term before, so that's new to me. So analyst experience is, is it for analysts or is it more like the experience of your product? Experience of your product to like a cybersecurity analyst within the company, for example. So somebody who is actually looking at alerts day in, day out, is your product or not just the UX, but you know, how do you solve it? How do you go from showing the alerts to categorizing the alerts to correlating them to whatever you're doing? Is that helping their lives? So that's also an interesting area of research from Forrester. But then you have ESG and IDCs of the world, which I kind of look at them as the next tier where, I mean, they have significant reach and people definitely value what they do. But of course, they're not as big as Gartner or even you know Forrester. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, it sounds like we'd need to map a persona just for analysts, right? For our product and they get their own data sheet and their own use case. Yeah. And again, you know, and then we have the Omdias and Deloros of the world, right? And then there are also kind of regional flavors, especially if you have a global company, global product line, maybe Frost and Sullivan, they're really strong in APJ, but they're not as strong in here. Analysis Mason, you know, they are strong in Europe, but not everywhere else. So I really have to figure out based on your target audience that you're trying to reach, who is the right analyst who's going to be important for your product portfolio. So that's, for me, step number two. Step number three is then educating these analysts on a regular cadence, you know, reaching out to them, showing them what, you've, what you're what you doing. 
But also important piece of the puzzle is seeking their feedback, right? I mean, every analyst that you talk to, I mean, of course, they are hearing from customers. They're looking at the peer insights. They're looking at the trends in the marketplace and then talking to different vendors. So it's kind of in your own benefit to really validate the messaging that you have, maybe the decks that you have, show it to them, ask them for feedback, and they're more than happy to share it. But it's not just enough to get that feedback. It's also important to close that loop by saying, hey, remember you told us this last time? Here is what we've done with that. So one example I would give is you know, when we are trying to launch MXDR as a service at DeepWatch, we had a lot of disagreements internally, whereas XDR and manage XDR really play, right? I mean, we are DeepWatch was an MDR company. So where at what altitude should MXDR play? And we didn't have a consensus. So then the next step was like, hello, let's go talk to some of the friendly analysts who've at least given us a lot of input in the past. And we talked to them, we got their feedback. And even that was not even within like, let's say Gartner, we got different feedback from different analysts. So really then how do you rationalize it? And then we launched the service. And before launching, we closed that loop with the analyst saying, hey, I know you said this, but we this is what we incorporated from your feedback. This is what we incorporated from your feedback from your colleagues. And here is what we've landed with. So really, we wanted to close that loop. And then the last piece of the puzzle is where you really have the analysts as your champions. I mean, you know, if you find an instance where the analyst firm is actually telling the customers, hey, if you guys are looking for this, these guys do it best. Go talk to them. That's for me is the really end goal for your strategic AR program. And if you were to achieve that, then that's what is golden. And this is as a startup in cybersecurity space, as even kind of mid-sized company, not every program gets there. If you do it the right way and evolve your program from you know phase one all the way to phase four, you, know, you will get there. It sounds like it needs a team of 100. Just what you just described in the last five minutes. It's insane. When you work with a good AR person, right? I mean, they know how to do this. I mean, you know, you can really point out, and this is not going to happen overnight, right? I mean, you have to give it, give it some time. You have to have a strong kind of runway and maybe four quarters, five quarters of runway before you actually get there. But other things are not going to stop, right? I mean, you're going to have wave submissions. You're going to have MQ submissions. You're going to have marketscape submissions coming your way. So how do you balance everything out where you know you're giving the response needed for to make this happen, but also working with these analysts to say that, hey, you know, yes, you placed us here and this is the dot we got. Now, if you given your feedback, I think we can, if we were to do this and this and this, maybe we had a better chance of succeeding and going to the next stage in your MQ or wave. I mean, they're ne- neither going to deny or confirm it, but you know, really highlighting what you plan to do based on what they've told you is also important. Right? And in some cases, they will say, yeah, probably no, don't spend time here, but do something else. But there is no guarantee that your dot will move to the right or to the center. But at least you have a plan and you know, you're valid, at least inform the analyst and sort their feedback on the plan. So that's how you should continue to drive an engagement. And I think it's been cybersecurity space specifically, right? I mean, you have events, global events like RSA, you have Gartner summits, you have other different geographical analyst events. There are a lot of opportunities for you to connect with these analysts outside of just holding an inquiry or a briefing. So as product marketers, I've always encouraged my team to really jump on. If there is a five minute, you know, maybe there is a breakfast, maybe there is coffee. Just grab some time, you know, show them who you are, 
let them see your face and then kind of put kind of a human to the name of the company. <laughs> One last question, because I see this in our notes from our scoping call. And I wanted to hear your opinion, because this was also new to me, and you're so knowledgeable about analyst firms, the market of analyst firms that are out there. You had talked about employee to analyst ratios. What is that? And why is it important for us as marketers to know? Yeah, so I mean, especially for smaller companies, I mean, you have a challenge, right? You know, when you want to have a conversation with the analyst, everybody's interested. Okay, let me, I want to hear what this person has to say. So you're going to have the CISO, the CIO, in some cases, the CMOs, the CEO, everybody's wanting to listen in. Can I join? Can I join? And then eventually it ends up like one poor analyst. And then you have like 10 people from your company wanting to listen on and ask questions. So I think that's detrimental to the conversation, right? I mean, you, you cannot have these many people. So Gartner, in a way, does it well, where you know, only kind of the seat holders can be part of the conversation. But other firms allow you to do, kind of have multiple folks who are not on the contract or on the seat holder equivalent. But still, you have to be mindful as a product marketer who's going to be on the call. And these calls are not going to be recorded. So you have to be diligent on in taking notes. And maybe there is, I mean, now with, you know, you have AI tools to do transcription, right? So maybe use a transcription service where you can just record whatever the audio is. And use a transcription service and create notes using that. I mean, now there are tools that would actually take the meeting and create notes, right? I mean, audio of the meeting. So we have tools at our disposal so that we can give the kind of essence of the meeting and share it with the wider audience. Not everybody has to be on the call to listen in and ask questions. If I am one person and I see like 10 people asking me questions, I'm going to get overwhelmed when like these guys don't know what they're talking about. Fair point. Another thing that I think would be really interesting for marketers to know, because we, again, like you're so knowledgeable about the marketplace of analyst relations and the marketplace of analysts is you had mentioned looking into at your analyst firm, how many people at that firm are actually analysts versus just employees there. And I think that's really interesting. So what do you think about that? So it's critical to understand how analyst firms work themselves, right? If you're an analyst, at any major firms, and you have a target, a revenue target, right? That revenue target comprises of consulting with customers or buyers, consulting with vendors to bring in, and then you have that revenue target. So if you look at what's changed in the last couple of years is really the targets for the analysts have gone up. I mean, in some cases, you know, I've heard numbers like million dollar a year as an analyst draw. From there to like, you know, half a billion, you know, there, there are different ranges. But then that kind of shows you, kind of, even from the analyst perspective, it can be self-fulfilling, right? I mean, if you ask an analyst, they are also talking to different vendors. So they're going to give you feedback based on what they're hearing from other vendors. So you want to get real input. You have to talk to an analyst who's actually having customer conversations, right? And customers are asking them, you know, what are they asking them for? I mean, are they, like, for example, one thing that we found out in, in, as progress was, Digital experience is so fuzzy for so many people, right? And vendors and analysts have been talking about digital experience platforms, but no kind of decision maker, no buyer is actually buying a digital experience platform. So there is there is a disconnect between what the analysts see as the vision for the future versus what's happening on the ground today, right? So it's not too far apart, but at the same time, it's significantly different. So as product marketers, we have to know 
is this what you're hearing from the analysts? Is it kind of self-fulfilling narrative because they are experts in that space and they're actually trying to drive that conversation further? Or they're actually hearing this from their customers? And then then understand how many analysts are actually covering that space, right? You know, if you have one analyst covering that space, then they're going to have limited interactions versus if you have five analysts who are covering different parts of the space or collaborating on different aspects of the research, you're going to have better perspective. So this is where kind of understanding how many analysts are in the firm are actually having customer conversations and really covering that space effectively with different angles is important for us as the product marketers so that we can, even when you hear something that's, let's say, you know, in a, like if you look at Gartner, they do hype cycles and market studies, which can be future looking. So then, you know, how do you talk about the future, but still address the realities of the today, right? I mean, this is, this is a challenge we all have as from marketing perspective. So you have to rationalize it yourself with your teams Make sure that, yes, you are addressing that forward-looking outlook, but at the same time, making sure that your buying motions aren't affected. Wow. Look at those trade secrets. You only find them here on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Maria, is it time for our game? Yes, it is. Want to explain it? Yes. So, Ashish, every guest that comes on our show gets to basically choose a winner of this game, which is Gianna and I will take turns in guessing what you would be doing as a career if you weren't working currently in tech marketing. And I'll leave it vague tech marketing because it's not just cybersecurity marketing anymore. So we'll take a guess and then you'll tell us how miserably bad we did. Jana, you go first because I've been going first and winning a lot lately. Oh heck, yeah! <laughs> this is this one. I think I'm gonna get in the bag. I think you'd be an analyst. Mm, no, not really. Oh. I, mean, oh. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, if you know, again, it, you know, one thing that probably should come across is I am an extrovert. I love to talk to people, but at the same time, I'm not somebody who would sit at a desk and you know crunch out stuff all day long, right? So I did think about it, but I don't think <laughs> that's my calling. <laughs> Okay, because I thought I could envision you talking to lots of people and getting like a great, you know, because you're in product marketing and you're seeing like more than just your product, but like the ecosystem. I don't know. I thought, ah, I'm so wrong. And you just you just smacked it down right away. So Maria's like a (laughs) default winner. Maria, what was your guess? (laughs) Well, so I know that you're a writer. I also know that you are involved across different educational institutions. Yes, I was being creepy on your LinkedIn. So I think maybe a combination of the two, I could see you being a professor at a university. It doesn't have to be tech or because I know you come from an engineering background too. But yeah, somewhere in teaching, somewhere in education. Sorry, Gianna, you are the winner. (laughs) Maria, you got it right. (laughs) Oh, okay. Wait, wait, so I got it right. So I am the winner? Yes. yes. <laughs> I thought, I just thought for a second there that Maria got it so know, wrong that you retroactively gave me the win, even though I was wrong. But Maria, congratulations. I got my undergrad. I got my master's in engineering, got my MBA. I also wanted to get a PhD and then, you know, go teach. So I'm like, okay, you know, but I will wait. I mean, I'll wait till kind of I get over with my professional career, but then, you know, really end up 
going into teaching. But one thing that I have to learn before I do that, that I am an impatient teacher. My 15-year-old son kind of says, like, you know, hey, you are very impatient. You have to be, yeah, you have to learn how to kind of explain the same thing over and over to somebody who doesn't get it. So I'm like, okay, till I do that, I'm not going to actually explore being a professor. <laughs> but, yeah. but eventually, yes. That's awesome. But you know what? Sometimes you're right because it's our kids. And I experienced that myself, like even just helping with homework, there is this certain like impatience. But I think if you're teaching others, I don't know why we get this godly divine power to be as patient as possible. <laughs> no, but I mean, I think in a way, right, I think one of, you know, when I look at myself, what is my superpower, right? Where I can visualize things kind of way further out and then, then figure out how do I'm going to get there. In that sense, my mind is running 200 miles an hour and I'm already there where people are still behind and not not being able to catch up. I'm sure there are other folks who kind of feel the same way, but this is where kind of the disconnect and the impatience comes in. It's like, I'm already there. Why are you guys you know, <laughs> kind of follow, following me and getting there? Let me say, that's why you'd be a great analyst. Come on. <laughs> like Maybe, who knows? <laughs> Forward thinking hype cycle type analyst. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the future. Oh, you could be a futurist. That's like a job that, that people have, right? Really? Like futurist. Yeah, like a deep thinking futurist person. I know, you know, where they just think about the future. If it pays well, I would definitely love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. And now here's the part where we ask you where people can reach out to you if they want to reach out to you. But I want to add, we know you're an author. So please also plug your book. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've actually two books to my credit. The first one was self-published. It was a crime fiction. But the second one I wrote together with my son, which is a mythological fiction for middle grade kids. It's kind of a low Percy Jackson kind of story, but it's based on the Hindu mythology. And it was a really interesting project to do with my son, who was at the time 11 years old. So we used to kind of every time I used to take him to soccer practice, we used to drive and talk about the story. The next chapter and he used to write his version. I used to write my version. And then my wife was kind of the editor. And they're like, okay, this one's better. This one's better. So, of course, she would pick our son most of the time. <laughs> but that's how it came together. And it was published by the largest children's book publishing company in India called Tulika Books. It's called The Tenth Son. And it's available on Amazon. Now it's going to be on, on Audible, too. I mean, we are in the process of actually going through the recording process. So yeah, it's it's kind of exciting, but yeah, I mean, if you know, if I get more time, I want to write something that's different from tech, different from security, but should be something, you know. Again, I don't think I I want to write a hacking novel, but yeah, who knows? <laughs> I was gonna say, help us write the book on cybersecurity marketing. <laughs> this is something, but I did consider, right? I mean, when you look at marketing today, most of the cybersecurity marketing, I mean, we used to be at RSA and shows like this where we used to get a lot of leads, and that last two years have shown us that that is no longer true. I mean, yes, when you host events, when you host breakfast, I mean, you get few leads, but then they are typically not the decision makers. So how do you reach out to the decision makers as a cybersecurity company? And most of it is done digital marketing, digital and outreach. And in some cases, yes, I mean, you do like the CISO dinners and CISO events where you kind of filter out based on the titles. But those can be successful. But so again, the marketing spectrum is so large for cybersecurity. And, and one thing that, again, what's significantly changed, and if you look at 10 years ago, 
it was all about hey bad stuff happened we are come we are going to come here and save the day i mean that was the messaging that was the marketing approach for every cybersecurity company from there now it's evolved to be more of like hey you know i'm going to tell you not just to solve your existing problem how can you evolve your cybersecurity program to do not address the needs of today but for tomorrow and day after so how do you become that mentor or a guru of some sort in your voice and tone in your communications in your everything that you do as a cybersecurity company where and some in some cases whatever you do in your product or your service may not cover everything that happens i mean everything that the customer needs but then do you have a point of view when you look at trends like xdr or zero trust i mean no one company has everything that is required to go from zero to zero trust in a way so how do you become that trusted advisor and i think this is where i see more cybersecurity companies really changing their messaging to become more of an advisor more of a trusted partner and kind of take that mantle saying you know you can call us when you have a need and really i mean in a way it's kind of a second analyst outreach right so i think that's the goal is how do you become that trusted partner for your customers and i think the spectrum is so wide that you know right from customer marketing to getting them to buy your product to retaining them all of this is going to be part of marketing going forward so it would be a really interesting project to take on if you were to do it <laughs> It's so true. We just had Samara Williams on the podcast, who is a practitioner. And she said, you know, don't sell me by saying your thing is going to fix everything because it's not. You're here to there help. There's no silver bullet. Yeah. Mm-hmm, exactly. So like you just said, no one product is going to take you from zero to zero trust. And to say otherwise and to market otherwise is disingenuous and people can see through it. Even when you look at buyers, right? okay. we look at CISOs, right? They, they, your typical lifespan in a company is two to two and a half years. And you're going to join a company, turn things around quickly, show that you've made a progress, and then then you've really changed things around. So who's going to be your, you know, if you have a good relationship with one vendor who you trust to really make that difference for you, as you move the jobs, as you become and go to from a smaller company to bigger to bigger, you're going to carry that relationship forward with you. So it is important, and you know, especially if you're a startup, you know, to establish that relationship with the CISO, that where you are the trusted advisor. So it's not just you know two years out, but you know you're looking at an investment that would take you five, ten years out. Deep cuts right at the end of this, right? <laughs> <laughs> After the closing, this is great, Maria. You want to close this out? <laughs> yeah, this was yeah, like like you said, this is quite deep from minute one. So thank you so much for joining us today. For uh, our wonderful listeners, you know, a new episode drops every Wednesday. So make sure you subscribe so you get the alert and give us as many stars as possible. Give us the love back as much as we love you. And Ashish, thank you so much for joining us again. And see you all next time. And I love talking to you guys. And I really like what you guys are doing. I think I'm super happy that somebody's actually carrying the mantle here and then really talking about marketing and cybersecurity because, you know, in cybersecurity is like no other industry. But as things evolve and as we kind of blur the lines between industries, like as I was talking about digital experience and cybersecurity, I think people have to realize that, yes, you know, marketing itself has to evolve. So love talking to you. I would love to catch up again. Thank you.